Here we go. Wouldn't it be nice? Take one. It's like this, and I'll tell you if you want to just, boom, you hit the downbeat, and then, and then uh, Frankie over there, who's looking, uh, oh, hi, Frank. Uh, then Frankie, it's like, boom, two, three, four, five, Frankie, you just come right in with that. Uh, hey, Frankie, you come in with this thing. With a thing on. Wah, choo choo. Three, four, wah, choo choo. So have those ready. You're not playing in the intro. Just come in with those. Here we go. Come on. Take four. Take five.
Take seven. All right, there, of course, are the Beach Boys. Wouldn't it be nice? And you can hear at the top of that, Brian Wilson talking to the band, talking to Hal Blaine. And, uh, that you know, I, I think that is my second favorite single of all time. Sometimes it's my first favorite. Anyway, we're talking about Hal Blaine today, and uh, Dennis Dyken joins me on the phone. Dennis, good morning. How are you? I'm good, Mike, and I'm so glad you called me. Always a pleasure to speak with you. I'm glad we could do this. I mean, I know that you and I have spoken you know, in diners and uh, off the air about Hal Blaine for, I'm not exaggerating, hours of our lives. Tell me when, I know that you contacted Hal way, way many, many years ago. Uh, why and how? Why? Because uh, his his playing meant so much to me, as I'll be repeating what so many other drummers have been saying for years, and I think Max Weinberg uh, coined it best. He it blew his mind when he found out that 12 or however many of his favorite drummers turned out to be Hal Blaine. <laughs> uh, so many of us uh, drummers and just casual listeners grew up listening to uh, radio in the 60s and 70s and were moved by the groove, and hey, that, that rhymes, of, uh, of certain records that we may not have realized uh, were helmed by session players. Uh, in some cases, uh, session players that uh, subbed, I guess is the word, for the regular musicians in a name band, let's say like the Beach Boys or the Association, uh, bands that had an image with, with their own players like Dennis Wilson on drums and uh, Ted Blue Shell from the Association, just to use those as examples. Anyway, growing up, I was so into these records, I remember buying the Association album Inside Out in 1967, the one that had Wendy and Never My Love in stereo and separating the left to right so I could hear the drums and learn from them. And I was so into the sound and the feel and the playing on those cuts. And I just said, wow, I am so into this drummer in the association, Ted Blue Shell. And, um, of course, years go by, and we all learn that on that the band members in these groups may not have played on all of their own records, and they were studio players. So when I finally learned that Hal had played on a, a great percent of some of my favorite records that have been inspiring me all my life, uh, when I found out it was Hal, I, I, came to, I, I came to a certain age where I said, I just got to write this guy a letter. And I did. A friend of mine got me his address, and I, I wrote him basically a fan letter, uh, I think at the time I was even aspiring to do some article or I think a little a little booklet about him, or fanzine, something to that extent. So I wrote a letter to him. He was living in Hollywood at the time. And I think it was within a week I got a reply from him. Uh, and it just blew me away that here this guy whose who's, uh, work had meant so much to me took the time to respond. And that's how we... And in that letter, he, he includes his phone number. <laughs> this is 1982. And um, 
I learned uh, by staying in touch with him and talking with other people. He just, he was a people person. He loved, number one, he loved the recognition because you think about 1982, his career had already peaked, I guess you would say, by the, the late 60s, even though he was working well into the 70s. But by that time in 82, it's way before the internet or, or general knowledge about a lot of these the session players and just the way things go in the music business. Uh, I'm sure he wasn't getting a ton of fan mail or pats on the back from, from people out there. So he, he, he relished that. And, um, and he, he loved to, to stay in touch with people and he, 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 he gave, he was a, he was a real giving spirit. So he, it was easy to stay in touch with him and become his friend. Yeah, and then over the years, as you were traveling with Smithereens and stuff, you always kept in touch with him. It's kind of an, um, a great story, uh, until fairly recently, I assume, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I spoke with him last year. I couldn't make it out for his 90th birthday party, which was just in February of this year. But I was actually on a, a, a roundtable phone interview with him last year, and he, he sounded great. And two years ago, I actually interviewed him for a piece I wrote uh, for Modern Drummer magazine, there was a feature issue on the year 1967, which is uh, which was a great year for Hal. He was at the peak of his powers, I would say, at that time. Yeah, it's interesting that just two weeks ago he had a birthday party and he looked fine. I mean, he was 90 when he died, but it was just a few weeks ago. And there was a lot of pictures. It was at the baked potato, and was, of course, star-studded uh, turnout for that. Yeah, let's. Yeah. I don't know. Starting with 1967 is kind of. Uh, Perfect. One of the things he worked on in 67 that I did not know was Love Forever Changes. He's on part of that record. Of course, did not chart, but uh, some of the records, I mean, we can't list every record he played on that charted, but just since you uttered the phrase 1967, uh, he had a number three hit with Bobby V. And going through this, these lists, it's amazing. This is just a, interesting to me, how when you listen to oldies radio, some people sort of have disappeared and some people stayed. Uh, and Bobby V, Come Back When You Grow Up, is just a song you never hear anymore, yet it went to number three. Frank and Nancy Sinatra, Something Stupid, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Him or Me, What's It Gonna Be, Scott McKenzie, Wear Flowers in Your Hair, The Association, Like You Said, Windy, Never My Love, Fifth Dimension, Up, Up and Away, Grassroots, Let's Live for Today, Mamas and the Papas, Dedicated to the One I Love, and Creek Alley, Monkeys, Little Bit You, Little Bit Me, Supreme's Happening. Those were all top ten hits in 1967. Of course, all have drums. Uh, so imagine the number of top 40 hits is probably that times five or six, maybe. Yeah, I would not say that's outside the realms of possibility. That 67, he was on a lot of great records, yeah. Yeah. So that's very possible. I mean, I said this before that, and I don't know if it's true or not, but he in some way is the epitome of what studio musician was, and maybe maybe the most prolific, maybe not, but certainly I think the best studio musician there will ever be. Uh, I, I couldn't disagree with that. You know, he had, I, I mean, just from his track record alone, how can, how can you name anybody else that comes close? Maybe Earl Palmer. Uh, the other great, the, actually, the LA, uh, New Orleans later LA studio drummer who uh, recorded so much and actually gave Hal his start in in Los Angeles. But he he played on an awful lot of stuff. And in this day and age, I don't know if anybody else have the 
if there's any other statistics, but that would challenge that. But I think he was the epitome uh, because he he could play. You know, it's he played on so many different styles and so many different types of records. He could just walk into the studio, look at what was put in front of him, and get the job done, but make it feel so good. That that was. I think the gift of any accomplished musician that can work that much and have such a long-lasting career, you get not just about chops, it's not just about uh, ability and technique, it's about, it's about feel and the, the feel that you inject into the piece of music you're interpreting. When, and consider you're doing, in Hal's case, on the average, 12 to 18-hour days. I think for some of the sessions, it's interesting that he would come in and find uh, a piece on on sheet music, and Hal read sheet music and could come in and just do it off the sheet music. And then probably in the same day, he might walk in and have a, a more of a green producer who didn't know anything and expected the session musicians to sort of work up an arrangement, you know, from a lead sheet or whatever. And I think that creativity you know, is was part of what was expected from those guys. And it also it blows my mind. I mean, I think I said this to some one of the studio musicians I interviewed was that it's kind of interesting that a band writes a song, they rehearse it, maybe they play it on the road for a year, and still some for some reason, Hal, who'd never heard the song, could come in and make a more interesting record in three hours than that band who had lived with the song for months. Wow, it's an interesting thought there uh you know I, I think part of the reason for that perhaps happening is that the guys in the, the so-called wrecking crew were working s- daily so much like i said 12 to 18 sometimes 20 hour days and sometimes weekends so day after day after day week after week month after month you are so well oiled and so in tune, uh, not just with what's going on in the current day pop world, the then current day pop world, because you're helping to create it, number one, but your your instincts uh, and and your um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You just your wherewithal to to inject something different and special is so heightened, you know, because of all that daily practice. <laughs> Yeah, you're funny. It's funny because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if you want, if you're trying to make a record that sounds like the top 40 sound, and you are the top 40 sound, as we just sort of, with it, just that list from records from 1967, yeah, I mean, that was the sound, you know? So it became became a thing. I, I um, When I interviewed Bones Howe, he said something like, you know, that Howe's time wasn't perfect, but that there there was something about like what you said, just the feel, which is why he always wanted Hal, Hal around. And then when I interviewed Steve Barry, he said something interesting, which was he would make Hal change the tuning of his drums because he didn't want, because you know, he might produce 10 groups with Hal playing drums. He didn't want them all to sound like they had the same drummer. And finally, Hal left a set of drums there and said, okay, do whatever you want to these. I'll leave them here. And this will just always be the, the set I play when I come here. And now uh, Steve Barry's son has that set of drums. Wow, that's cool. And that's an interesting point and pretty astute 
on Steve Barry's part, I would say. You know? yes. He's yeah. still getting Hal's feel and talent, but right, he's getting a different sound, which back then when so many, you know, you read, I'm sure you've got this from um, a lot of the producers you've interviewed. The big thing in the 60s when it was, there were so many great records being made, you, the producers would ultimately, they're trying to create or, or add a sound or an element to a record that would make it stand out from all the others, that was that was a big challenge. So yeah, to have a different drum sound but still have Hal's feel, it's a good move. Yeah, it's a good move. Let's talk about. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but like he had some down times, right? He had some t- times. I mean, was he? I know he was married more than once. Is a is a, a very accurate statement. I mean, how do you know much about his personal life? I know that his first wife died, uh, and then he was married. Four times after that, um, I, you know, I don't know a, a lot of details about it. I think I used to, and I forgot honestly, because um, we would we would chat a lot on the phone, and he would talk about his life, and and I, I do remember him saying he was kind of a sucker for blondes. He used to make <laughs> a lot of divorce jokes and sort of alimony jokes, you know. Right, and uh, I well, and of course, I think he does talk about it in the film, The Wrecking Crew, that. His, uh, I guess it was his last marriage, or the, the the one that did him in. There was that one divorce that uh, seemingly came out of nowhere. He did not see it coming, and she uh, took him for everything, everything. So that that was that was sad. I have no idea what went on behind closed doors, but it just something didn't uh, didn't seem right about it, you know. From and there was definitely something about Hal in the studio that made him a leader, I think, of that group of people. Yeah, well, he um, everybody loved Hal. He he had a penchant for uh, cutting the tension at sessions because he was a great joke teller, and he always found the right moment if things were getting a little tense. Uh, he would come out with, a, with something to break the spell. Uh, I think on one of those... Phil Spector sessions, I think it was Be My Baby. Uh, Phil talks, he interjects on the on the on talk back mic about, come on guys, you want a big bonus at Christmas, don't you? And uh, in so many words, and they're going for another take, and the musicians are kind of distracted or they're chatting among themselves. And you hear Al say, "Come on guys, it's Christmas," <laughs> and then they go for another take. I mean, that's just a, it's not a full on joke, but that was his. That was his persona in the studio. He was always uh, cutting up. And when you say leader, too, but uh, in a technical sense, I think he was often a session leader. Uh, and according to the, the union, the AFM, every session uh, had to have a designated leader. And, um, and that person would also get double scale for a given session. Uh, even if you were the only player, let's say you were doing an overdub, uh, this happened to me once, and I couldn't believe it. Uh, I, I was adding drums to a track. It was a union session. And when I got my check, I was the default leader because I was the only player on the session. So, <laughs> I, so how, yeah, he was, uh, like I said before, he was a people person. People loved him. And uh, he, he was a leader and a contractor. He would be the guy hired for some sessions, for many sessions, I believe, to uh, choose all the other players the other musicians for a given uh, for a given cut. He would know 
it was best, let's say it was a Bones House session, and he knew the guys that Bones liked, so he would call those guys or somebody that was able to deliver the, the type of thing that, that Bones was looking for. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that I, you know, whenever you ask these guys how much they got paid for a session, and I think the sessions were three hours, that they would, you know, some of them, depending on when they started, you know, it starts at like $18.50 or these kind of strange amounts and $35, you know, were, you know, it doesn't get too much higher than that. But when you were the leader and the, and the booker and, you know, working 20 hours a day or whatever, I guess it added up because Hal made a lot of money. He drove Rolls Royces and, you know, had, had toys uh, over the year. Have you ever heard, heard his CD called Badoom? Oh, for sure I have, yeah. <laughs> it's a CD where he just it, tells a, jokes, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. But let me backtrack for a session. Um, yeah. For a session. Boy. Uh, for a second. <laughs> Freudian slip. Uh, 35 bucks in 1964, 35, 35 bucks an hour, not per session, but per hour, ain't A when you think about it, right? No, no, yeah, it's, it's still not terrible, yeah. And so, if you're working a three-hour session, you're making over a hundred bucks there, and you do that three, four, five times a day, five, six days a week. That adds up real quick, actually, when you think about it. For sixty-four, sixty-five, sixty-six, yeah. And in Hal's case, he—I don't know at what point he started demanding double scale. And eventually triple, I believe. So um, that's how he was able to, um, yeah, to to have a Rolls Royce. He had a really nice house too. I hadn't never been to the house that he lived in uh, in the sixties and seventies, but I ha- that was the address that I sent my initial fan letter to, and I looked the address up, and it's quite palatial, uh, beautiful house of, above where the Hollywood Bowl was. I guess it was a good location to get to all the studios quickly, too. Uh, I think that, 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 that house later was purchased by Ben Stiller. I don't know if he still lives there or not. Oh, that's cool. So I think one of the ways he, he was able to do this, and I guess you might know more about this, is that he had many drum sets, and he had a guy who would sort of be one studio ahead setting up the drums so that when he walked in, he just needed to sit down and play. Correct. Yeah. I think he had three kits, if I'm not mistaken, all identical. Uh, and his guy, his name was Rick Fouché, I believe was his last name, who passed away a couple of years ago, uh, was his, I mean, how loved this man and depended on him so much. He, uh, right, how would get his, his, um, his, his, his session bookings for the week or whatever, and he'd give them to Rick. So Rick knew that, okay, if, if how was going to be a gold star at 8 a.m., that Rick would be there beforehand with the kit set up, leaves the kit for how to do the session. Meanwhile, brings the kit number two to Western for the next session, sets up while Hal is doing the session, the gold star, and on and on and on. And um, this fellow Rick also maintained Hal's kits. Uh, Hal went into detail talking about he, he would just take them apart and put moleskin in between all the the lugs and everything, so there was no noise. I mean, he was very, he, he was a big part of Hal's story, really, uh, the guy behind the scenes. But, but it's, just the, I, it's the only way a guy like Hal could work as much as he did. And I think he was the first guy to employ 
cartage and set up and everything. I, I often wonder about student you know, sessions in those days, how guys, if they didn't have their own uh, the roadie, so to speak, how could they facilitate doing that work? I mean, okay, so I'm done. Let's say the session is, is 9 to, to 12. So does that mean you get there 8.30 and you set up and then you do the session then afterwards, you know, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it takes to unload? And how do you, what a lot of work that was. I know Bobby Graham in, in London told me that's what he had to do. It's incredible. And then in some cases, find parking and all that. <laughs> uh, I know uh, th- there's a certain point there's a certain point in Hal's career where he got known for using what he called the monster kit or what became known as the monster kit and it's a drum set with I don't know I want to say 10 you know or a lot more tom-toms than than two or three which is sort of the more usual number and I always feel like uh, in some ways he just must have added that to to change the sound to keep it fresh to try to offer something new i don't know it's not like my ideal type of drum set i think if you listen to like a cherokee nation song you can hear that but what did you think about that and because there's lots of pictures of him with this drum set did he like playing that did he use it a lot did he use it correctly yeah i think so um uh, I, yeah, I play a four-piece kit. Sometimes I'll add a second floor tom to make a five-piece five kit. But I, I think you can, you can do a lot with four pieces. But Al was, was always thinking ahead and looking ahead and knew that producers were looking for something different. I think it was brilliant. And it really uh, it came about in 1967, I think, is when he first developed it. Um, and, yeah, it sounds about it. One, two, 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 four, five, 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 probably eight to ten toms so in addition to his four-piece kit. And uh, he did use it well. I don't think it ever got in the way of the music or the song. When you, If you analyze it, I, I think you'll find that, uh, that it really worked. The first record was that I think put that sound on the map was The Snake by Al Wilson. Uh, you know yeah. that record, right? Yeah, yeah. And that that really um, it adds a different flavor to the record. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's bad in any way. And then I and sometimes he he won't he'll use those tongues, but he may not uh, go around around them necessarily. Like on Stone Soul Picnic, for example, a great example where he he just uses them for single hits. Uh, going into some of the, coming out of some of the choruses, if you listen to that, or um, there's a lot of different examples where he, he, he doesn't always use it just for that that total round, big fill thing. So, right. And I think it was born out of him um, using timbales sometime prior to the Monster Kit. Even on Windy, by the association, those high-pitched fills are high-pitched timbales. Um, or Pray for Surf by the Honeys, if you listen to that. He has timbales uh, tuned real low. So he was looking for different timbres, different sounds. He, going back to the early 60s, there's a picture of him at Gold Star where he could been probably from 63. I don't know what the session was, but he's got the uh, timbales there. So anyway, yeah, that was uh, his vision to create something like that. And uh, maybe what it wrought 
is another question. <laughs> right. Well, one of the things that you just made me think of was, like, his playing on Windy is something he did a lot where he a- helps add another hook to the song. You know, the thing that you remember, the thing that you hum along, uh, instead of just the drums being part of the rhythm section, very musically, Hal often added something that was the hook. And another thing that I recognized that he did was very often he will like if he's got a fill going into to start the chorus or something, he'll play it every time so that it becomes like a guitar part or like something else that's repeated. Uh, it just becomes, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a hook. Yeah. You're right. And in the case of Wendy, I guess you're talking to the part that he does that go, leads into the, eh, 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 <laughs> right. When he goes, <laughs> and so yeah, if exactly. you listen to it, he he does the, he does something every time there, but he does vary it slightly, yes, he does. which makes it even cooler, you know. But no, you're right. All those guys in the Wrecking Crew or any good studio players back then that were making a lot of records, you're right. They their individual parts, even if it was sometimes even just one moment in a record, and it wasn't repeated, it it, it creates um, a thing that you can't wait to hear, you know. Yeah. You, in the Smithereens, you have made very modern-sounding records, uh, very contemporary-sounding records. What's the most number of microphones used on your drum kit, your five- or four-piece drum kit, do you think? I never counted them, you know. I know. But, but it could be a dozen, money, right? Oh, I would say, yeah, because you... Okay, let's just think for a second. Top and bottom of snare, uh, toms and overheads. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it can get up there. He could right, but so often, and this is my point, is that you'll see these photos of Hal, uh, and maybe it's Gold Star because I, I think that room is very small to what people think of as a studio, and everybody's crowded in one room, and it looks like sometimes you can only see one mic on the drums. There might be another one on the kick drum or something, but very often these hit records have one or two or three mics on the drums. Period. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, but recording was done in a very different fashion in those days, and they, were, they weren't they weren't uh, afraid of bleeding. You know, where the sounds will leak in from other instruments to create a whole picture. Uh, it was a different mentality. Well, I definitely think that because they were making these records virtually live, and then maybe sometimes just putting the vocals over. Yeah, there was. They know what it was going to sound like. There was never this idea that we'll fix it later, we'll change it later, and so they had to be able to have everything separated because they knew they weren't going to do that. It was done, you know, when those guys walked out of the room, yeah. Phil Spector's in the control booth, and what he's hearing is is the final picture, pretty much. You know, he's he might have been putting all those, those players onto one track, and yeah, you walk out of there, and there's your record. Yeah, the vocals, maybe strings later, but... It's a great way to record. I've done it a few times, and I, I just love it, you know. One of the things that, that when I try to explain how to people who maybe don't care as much as I do or don't see the significance as much as I do, and believe me, that's fine. As long as you like the music, it really doesn't matter if you know who Hal is, you know. And I think that's that's sort of Hal would tell you that. He's, he's just there to serve the song. But wh- when I try to describe it to people, I sort of say, the Phil Spector sound, you know, if you say, this guy was the drummer on the Phil Spector sound, to me, that is like a career-making credit to have. Or to say, you know, he was the, the Beach Boys guy during that time uh, 
when Dennis went on the road and wasn't in the studio and, and, and Brian stayed in. That's all Hal. And for me, again, you know, Pet Sounds, that is just a career-making credit. Uh, he's also Elvis's drummer, right? Maybe one of the most two, three f- most famous uh, music makers ever, right? That's a career-making credit. And also he touched Sinatra's world. Uh, all of those, oh, yeah. are, you know, I mean, and that's nothing. You know, that is like... One percent of his his output. Uh, it's it's kind of an almost an overwhelming thing. There's some interesting uh, stuff I read somewhere about when they first started working with Brian, and Brian was so young that I don't. I won't say that they had their doubts, but it's just interesting to to read everyone's accounts of watching Brian get the respect and come of age in the studio and. Uh, and I know that Brian and Hal were really close. Yes, they were. Yeah, I think. It, yeah, it took them a few beats, <laughs> but uh, in short order, they realized that Brian was somebody special, and uh, and they looked forward to working with him because it was going to be great music, perhaps a little challenging, but they were going to walk out of the session feeling like this. This was not just another pop record. Uh, so yeah, it, they, they. Brian, there's that great story I, you probably have heard. At one point, I think it was in the '70s, where Brian was going through some trip, head trip, where he decided he was going to ditch his gold records. So he put them in a cardboard box, drove to Hal's house, and has, gave them to Hal. He said, "Hal, I want you to have these." <laughs> uh, and Hal said he he wouldn't accept them but i think he he went to say goodbye and then brian just left him on his porch or something mm-hmm. so but they know they they had a a real uh deep mutual admiration society going and uh and that you know it's it's how can you say it, it certainly hal was there to have a career and make as much money as he can but he he cared you know he really he really cared about doing a good job, making his mark, making a hit record, uh, making good music. You know, and he he, he cared about people. He, he and I think that's why those records. That's why he played on so many great records, worked with so many great artists, because what he put into the grooves of those records was a reflection. Of his love of life, of, of of his love of mankind, if you want to put it that way, I think it's uh, those records feel so good because he had that spirit, and in turn, those records make us feel glad we're alive. I really feel that way when I'm walking in a supermarket, or if I uh, hear it on the car radio, or wherever I might be, and I and let's say, uh, yeah, be my baby comes on, or. Uh, um, even a track like "That's Life," which I think is a, a killer groove and a killer feel, it just, it, it just lightens my step, lightens my load, and yeah, you, know, you can say that about a lot of records by a lot of people when you hear them. But I say across the board, any Hal track will, just, will get you through the day a little easier. How interesting! Yeah, it, yeah, you're absolutely right, and and sort of as I alluded to earlier, we sort of take it for granted, which. We sort of should, but at times like this, yes, we need to sort of stop and look back and sort of see the big picture of how this stuff got made and and who made it 
and uh, and be thankful for them. Well, one of the things I thought was interesting as I as uh, this morning as I was getting ready to talk to you is that I was looking on YouTube and there's almost no footage of Hal playing the drums live or in the studio. There's no footage of Hal playing the drums. I mean, there's a very there's a you know two or three instances you can sort of see over and over. But he they were all locked in the studio, like you said. You know, twelve hours a day. Yeah. They were not on TV. They were not out playing live. Uh, so you don't get to see it, which for me is a shame. It is a shame. There are some things that uh, I've seen, but I haven't seen them since. Like I think the first time I actually saw any moving image of Hal was probably in the late seventies or early eighties on the Tonight Show. He was playing with John Denver at mm. the time, and I remember I was really into Hal at that point. And I'm watching The Tonight Show, and there's John Denver, and he introduces the band. And on drums, Hal Blaine. And it blew my mind to actually see, oh, that's, that's Hal. That's, that's him up there for real. But there was that footage of, um, that surfaced in the last couple of years, that uh, Beach Boys Good Vibrations footage, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, I know you know what I'm talking about. But that's kind of staged. Yes, you still see how he holds how he holds the sticks. I remember seeing, and I don't think this has surfaced either, there was footage of him, color footage, mid-60s of him in the studio with the Mamas and Papas. But I don't think that's come up. I, I haven't searched for it in a while. Um, there's footage of him playing with Nancy Sinatra in Vegas. Have you seen that? Yes. Yeah, there's only those couple things. You're right. It's a... There's him at the Hollywood Bowl yeah. with uh, Jan and Dean. You can sort of see that. Uh, you ever see? Yeah, he and he's he's great on that. Yeah, I think. Am I right that he held his left hand, his snare drum hand, with the jazz grip? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I think that uh, I think that it depended on the cut. And I believe he said when he played Spectre sessions, he played match grip the other way. You know, just the straight way. But but yes, he did play the traditional grip quite frequently from photos I've seen. And, and you know, maybe drummers can tell this, or astute music fans, you can kind of tell uh, from a track how they're holding the stick when you listen to the track. I, I can't or cer- tell. Certain, uh, yeah, most of, I think most of, most of the time he was using the traditional or jazz grip, yeah. You mentioned uh, John Denver. He played on Thank God I'm a Country Boy, which was number one hit. I think his last number one, I may have this wrong, was Theme from Mahogany from Diana Ross from 76. Although I did notice in 77 he plays on the Three's Company theme that everybody knows. Everybody. Uh, The other 70s hits, I think The Way We Were from Barbra Streisand, number one. Half Breed, number one from Cher. Song Sung Blue. Neil Diamond. Uh, he plays on Ventura Highway by America, which was not number one, but a big hit. Never Rains in Southern California, big hit. Uh, those are kind of the end of the 70s. By 71, he still had a lot of hits, but uh, it, it sort of petered off. And do you think those guys understood that sort of self-contained bands were coming in? How do you think they all felt about that? How do you think Hal felt about that? You know, uh, this morning I was going through... Uh... I have a folder of some of my Hal ephemera and correspondence through the years. And uh, he says in the early 80s, he, he comments that something to the effect that he's surprised he's still uh, getting called because in Hollywood here, he said, I should have been washed up 20 years ago, he said, uh, the, knowing the way Hollywood 
discards people and goes for for younger players or younger actors or whatever it is. So I guess uh, they had that cognizance of of that uh, aspect of working. But uh, yeah, I think the self-contained groups. Uh, well, but actually, thinking about that now, the self-contained groups came in with the Beatles pretty much and uh, throughout the 60s, but those guys, that was their heyday. When I guess, I think I asked Hal about this, and, and he said, um, look, we didn't mind because we were playing on their records anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. I think there's that great, I think it's the drummer from the Birds who cried, you know, while they were cutting Mr. Tambourine Man because uh, he just, you know, it was just hard to take to sit there and watch Hal do it, you know? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure at some point his boot heels were wandering outside that studio, too. But, <laughs> Let's, uh, yeah. Let's talk about Hal's solo records. Uh, I think, am I right that he has three? Drums Go-Go, uh, Deuces, Tees, Roadsters, and Drums, Drums Go-Go, and Psychedelic Percussions from 63, 66, and 67. Uh, they're all fun, interesting records. Uh, you know, yeah. they set a lot of drums on them. That first album, yeah, was done for RCA, and it was produced by David Gates, the Deuces, Roadsters album. Mm. And uh, that is a fun record. My favorite is is Drums, Drums, A Go-Go. Um, whenever I do a fill-in on FMU, I use uh, Hal's version of Topsy. It's called Topsy 65 as my, my uh, intro music. Not my theme, but my intro music after I play my first set. And... Um, I love that record. It's pretty much his take on the Johnny Rivers live audience in the studio feel. And, uh, yeah, it, it's really a fun, it is a fun record. I like it a lot. And the psychedelic percussion is really trippy, man. It's, uh, it's probably 67, 68. And he plays these really active drum grooves and then overdubs, or even, I think he might've had Emil Richards and some other percussionists come in and play all these, zingy, wacky, percussive sounds. That album is really cool. And he did do one other record, actually, called Have Fun, Play Drums, uh, which was an instructional album. And if you get a chance to hear it, anybody out there, it's really cool, because it's how speaking and demonstrating uh, basic grooves and encouraging young players. Never heard of this one, yeah. Yeah, I could I could burn you a copy, Mike. <laughs> um, but... That just is leading me to uh, that, uh, the fact that Hal was really encouraging to to people and would correspond uh, with young drummers and uh, just you know. Um, did you ever know Bobby Lloyd Hicks, the great drummer? I never, a few I, years I, ago. I never met him, but I saw him play drums a bunch. Yeah, great, great drummer. He was a great guy. He, he was um, the Skeletons. He, Played later for a little while with NRBQ, and um, anyway, Bobby was a great guy and a good friend of mine and a fellow Hal uh, nut. Now, Bobby wrote letters to Hal in the '60s and got responses. I have copies of those, and I, I they're worth looking at, even just for a few brief excerpts. I could I could read to you. Uh, Oh, jeez. He talks about, he says, uh, this is from 
October 8, 1966. As for the Beach Boys and Herb Alber, as a studio musician, I work freelance for just about everyone in the business, as I have mentioned in the past. When the Beach Boys were starting out, they needed studio guys that were aware of recording to help them. I was one of the guys. As they started making it big, they naturally kept using the same guys that did all the big hits with them. And then in parentheses, Brian is a genius, no matter who was in the studio. I recorded with the boys yesterday a song called My Childless Father or something like that. <laughs> Which referring to childless father to the man. Right. So cool to see this. Uh, anyway, we happen to get the so-called Beach Boys sound, and the boys go on the road and make the big money as a top attraction wherever they go. Half the time they're on the road anyway, so they couldn't record. But by the same token, all the boys most generally are most generally on the sessions. We just augment the boys. This is nothing against the boys or their musicianship, just part of the business. Then he goes on about Herb Albert. It's just so cool to see him speaking in from those years, you know, in these letters and yeah. his advice. He, he, in another letter, he's encouraging Bob with his teenage band and just telling how important it is to practice, how to tune his drums. So he was always very, he was nice to people. He cared about people. He loved people. He he, he gave back. That's right. He, he never went, he never went, he never became a hippie, right? Did he do any sort of drugs? I mean, I've never heard of him getting psychedelic himself. No, he didn't. Um, he, he shunned it. I think if you read his book, he talks about, I guess he fought in Korea in the 50s, and um, or served, I don't know if he fought, but he served in Korea in the 50s, and there was one time where he got drunk, and it was a real bad experience for him, and he swore off, he, he never drank or took any kind of drugs whatsoever after that, nothing. That's so, yeah, he, he kept it clean. However, you've probably seen it's popping up uh, all over the Internet. Uh, I first saw this picture a couple years ago. It blew my mind. It's a picture of how, I guess, from the early seventies, where his hair was a little, little bushier, a little longer, and he's wearing a tie-dye T-shirt. <laughs> it just seemed out of character, but that, <laughs> I think that was his only concession to the hippie movement. Yeah, let's talk about some of. There's so many records you cannot, you really can't talk about them all. There just isn't enough time. But I've got a list here of records that were in the top ten that Hal played on, and I just want to list a few, sort of as a tribute to Hal, sort of because I think when you talk about Hal, it's kind of mind blowing, and the way to blow people's minds is to just keep listing records over and over and over, and people are like, "You're kidding me." It just seems too many records to be true, but it is true. So I'm going to name some records that Hal played on that went into the top 10. And Dennis, stop me if you have anything to say about the record at all, or about the drum groove, or about any anything, just how awesome the records are. Uh, Can't Help Felling in Love by Elvis's 1961 went to number one, might be Hal's first number one record. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that. Sounds, sounds about right. It's, it's kind of interesting because Hal... Uh, Elvis recorded a lot. He made, you know, 8 million movies, and they all have songs in them recorded in Hollywood. He was definitely making his best records in Memphis or in Nashville, and the sort of soundtrack records are not the best songs uh, he recorded, but he did record a lot in uh, in California and almost always with Hal, right? Well, starting in the early 60s, he, he actually yeah. did a lot of recording in Hollywood in the 50s, too. And he did make some really killer sides in Hollywood, but uh, 
I'd say from 61 moving forward, I think you're right. I think they were, it was probably all how. Uh, the Crystals, He's a Rebel, number one, of course. The whole Phil Spector sound has so much to do with Hal. Yep. Bobby Darren, 18 Yellow Roses. I never even heard that record, but I've, uh, number 10. Uh, Surf City by Jan and Dean, number one. Uh, this yeah, is the one interesting th- thing about that. I was just going to say the interesting thing about Surf City and quite a few of the Jen and Gene records certainly was Hal, but he had, uh, Jan Berry had Hal and Earl Palmer set up in the studio and he cut two drummers at once on those tracks. You know, once I learned that, I went back and listened and you can absolutely hear that. There's one compilation where they play the, where they offer the tracks only, a CD compilation where you can hear without the vocals and you can hear a slight flamming, you know, between the snares. It's a little yeah. messier, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, here's one that I always uh, – I know Hal didn't play with this guy a lot, uh, but Another Saturday Night by Sam Cooke. It has those sort of amazing fills in it, you know, that are sort of Fred Flintstone feet uh, sounding. Uh, great record, that is. That is great. And, that, and yes, you're right. That is, a, that is totally Hal. But Hal actually did play with Sam Cooke also on the Nightbeat album, huh. uh, considered by to be uh, – maybe Sam's finest album. I was kind of surprised because I listened to that album last year. I said, boy, what a, this is so great. And I thought for sure it was Earl Palmer. And maybe Earl played on one or two tracks, but most of that record is Hal. I believe you can hear Hal counting, counting that song off, or you can hear some, you know, there's like an outtake where you can hear, uh, because he's the drummer, that's kind of one wonderful thing is that on a lot of outtakes you hear Hal's voice uh, counting off records, uh, you know, some of your favorite that's records. True. That's yeah. Surfing uh, yeah. USA. Tell that to Gary Lewis, tell, tell, tell to Gary Lewis because you hear him <laughs> count off on, uh, on, the, on, the, on this diamond ring and I yeah. think count me in. Yes, absolutely, you can. It's unmistakable. Uh, the Beach Boys, Surfing USA, Be True to Your School, Surfer Girl, okay, let, let, me stop you, let me stop you. Let, let me stop you. He's not on Surfing USA. Who, who's the drummer on Surfing USA? And why isn't it Frank Hal? DeVito. Frank DeVito. Um, I don't know, but uh, it's, it's documented. Uh, uh, David Marks of the Beach Boys told me it, Dennis was supposed to do the session, but apparently he hurt his ankle. He fell and hurt his ankle. Why not Hal? Maybe they needed to cut the session. Hal wasn't available. This guy, Frank DeVito, who's still around, um, later became the regular drummer in the Baja Marimba band, is the drummer on Surfing USA. And I got to say, it plagued me for years because it, I, I, I said, it really kind of has Dennis's feel, but yeah. I, I thought it was a little too slick, a little too slick to be Dennis. And it didn't really sound like Hal to me either. Then it was, I finally learned that it was Frank DeVito. I read about an interview with him and, uh, and um, David Marks told me. You know. yeah. uh, also from 63, A Christmas Gift for You from Phil Spector. That record is, in some ways, you know, the most, the thing we'll just hear forever. You know, that, that is one of the most known records anybody ever played on. Uh, Everybody Loves Somebody Sometime from Dean Martin, number one. So he would go from playing with, you know, Jan and Dean to Dean Martin, different Dean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Lauren Green, Ringo, number one. 1964, lots of Beach Boys hits. Uh, the Hondells, the Marquettes, the Ripcords. Uh, Barry McGuire, Eve of Destruction, like you said, which was number one. Gary Lewis and the Playboys, This Diamond Ring, where you can hear Hal. Uh, it's definitely Hal on Taste of Honey for Herb Albert, right? 
Yeah, that, that certainly is. And let me interrupt another thing for a second. And I was talking about this on Sue Braun's show yesterday. Okay, so how have, probably has on his discography, I Get Around. Is that, do you see that in front of you? How yeah, did it is. play on that record? How did not play drums, though? He played percussion on that record. Dennis played drums. The reason I know it's because it's on the session tapes that came out on bootlegs. You hear it's Dennis playing drums, but Hal is on percussion. And I think it's the same thing for uh, Dance, Dance, Dance. So there's another way for right. mistakes to be made or, or misinterpretations to be made. Yeah, I think Hal is playing whatever those 16th notes thing on I Get Around, I think. I Get Around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think like brushes on tamales or something like that. Yeah. Uh, he plays on the birds, Mr. Tambourine Man. Bobby Darren, If I Was a Carpenter. Bob Lind, Elusive Butterfly. Uh, Frank Sinatra, That's Life, Strangers in the Night. Poor Side of Town, Secret Agent Man from Johnny Rivers. Boots Are Made for Walking. My Love, Petula Clark. I know she did record some in Hollywood. Did that sound like Hal to you? Yes. Oh, it's totally Hal. Um, around that period, she started recording in L.A., I guess they, Tony Hatch wanted that hit sound, you know, and a lot of her records moving forward were from that period were, were cut in Hollywood. That's right. And it's a total wrecking crew. And you always think of Simon and Garfunkel as a New York thing, but uh, Hal's on a lot of that stuff. Did they fly him to New York? Did, was he, did they come to L.A.? What's the deal? Again, I think, I don't know about some of that early, I think there's some mistakes in the discography. I know that some of the early Simon and Garfunkel stuff was cut in New York, but I can't be sure what was cut where. I know they did record in Hollywood a bit, too. But I think they did fly him to New York at some point. Yep, it was for the Bridge Over Troubled Water sessions. I think that's the, he said to me that was the only time he recorded in New York, I think. So we're talking 1970, around 1970, yeah. That's amazing. He only recorded in New York that one time. That is... That's incredible. I guess why leave if he was so busy? That's it, and why? And that's why he didn't go on the road hardly at all after he was entrenched in the studio scene because you're on call every day. People want you know, so you can't fight the the hand that feeds you. He's, uh, and I think he would he, he tend he would end up making more money in the studio than he would on the road anyway. Also, you don't want to let Jim Gordon or or, or you know uh, Jim Keltner get your jobs, and then they sort of you know forget about you. You know, you got to stay exactly. number one. Yeah, That's uh, right. the, the association, uh, which is such Hal music to me. You know, that is just such a and a great what you said earlier, a great example of a band who had a perfectly good drummer, but Hal just sort of came in and, and killed it. Uh, wouldn't it be nice yeah. and good vibrations, Mamas and the Papas? Uh, Again, just such Hal music to me. And Monday, Monday, uh, California Dream, and it's our again last night. All huge hits. And then here's one, the Sandpipers, Guantanamera, number nine in uh, 66. Mm. Uh, it's possible, mm -hmm. right? The T-Bones, no matter what shape, yeah. uh, the Batman theme, uh, which well, is, of course. The T-Bones record is, the T-Bone record is so happening. When I was a kid, there's, there's a drum break, I guess it's, coming out of the bridge or going into a break where he just does like a four bar little figure. And I would lift the needle off and just play it over and over and over. What a cool record that is. And you know, they made that record in five minutes, right? I mean, it wasn't like, you know, 
something they, you know, a, a Brian Wilson labored over production. Yeah, you know, they just went in and did it, I'm sure. I think you're right. And if, that's a cool album, too. That whole album is pretty great, that instrumental album, um, No Matter What Shape Your Stomach's In by the T-Bones. And my guess is they probably did the whole album in two or three sessions, you know, maybe even in one day. Yeah, I've got that album. It's, it's terrific. Uh, moving on to 67, more Bobby, Bobby V, Frank and Nancy, Something Stupid, which I love that record. I I just love it. Uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Him or Me, uh, What's It Gonna Be? Uh, Scott McKenzie, Wear Flowers. Oh, this is the, the year we already talked about, didn't it? Uh, so we've heard all these already, but uh, including Love Forever. Well, no, I'll, I'll say that uh, that was one one. He didn't go on the road, per se, but they did fly him up to be the house drummer in, at the uh, Monterey Pop Festival in 67. And uh, he played with Scott McKenzie, Lauren Nero, Johnny Rivers, and the Mamas and... No, he didn't play with the Mamas and Papas. That was Eddie Ho played with the Mamas and Papas at Monterey. And maybe one other artist. But um, I did interview Hal about that the year 1967, and I asked him, and this is interesting, I asked him, oh, the who? You know, what did you think of Keith Moon? Because... Uh, I don't know what House Take would have been on Keith. Oh, I loved Keith, you know. Um, <laughs> that I saw him at Monterey, and I loved all the drama and theatrics, and um, and we became good friends. And I think the other reason that uh, uh, that Hal liked Keith so much is because Keith was very vocal about his, his his respect and love for Hal, you know. So. Uh, so that, I just thought it was great to hear him talk about Keith Moon. As a matter of fact, I saw him, I would run into him because we leased our cars from the same place. <laughs> anyway. Great Hal impression, by the way. Um, I just... One time, one time I'll, another, I'll, I'll toot my own horn here. One time, a friend of mine, John DeChristopher, was working at Zildjian and was good friends with Hal. And we, This is in the 90s. And uh, I, ca- I called up John and I left a voicemail. Hey, John, it's Hal calling. No big deal. Just wanted to check in. No, no need to call me back. And uh, so I totally faked him out. He he bought it. He <laughs> thought it was Hal. <laughs> That's great. You can't do yeah. that anymore. I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, that's 1968. Gary Puck and the Union Gap. Richard Harris's MacArthur Park, which was such a huge, huge. Uh, record um and that's the one that Hal always cites as his favorite really macarthur park yeah uh and with the union gap he played on i think maybe their earliest record then the later ones were done by jim gordon um but uh but macarthur park i guess because there's so much adventure on one side of a 45 and i think the, the legend is they did it in one take so i think he's very proud of that and no matter what you think of that song, I think it's a fabulous track. Just a fabulous track. A little less conversation from Elvis is from 68. And it, he uses that same drum beat on um, a uh, a Fifth Dimension tune. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't tell you which one it is. Yeah, yeah I can't either. Off the well, I mean, there's, simila- there's similarities at the, uh, on the uh, second half of... Uh, Aquarius let the sunshine in. There's that kind of feel to it. Yes, there is. I yeah, I guess that was going around. Yeah, what a great, great cut that is. And a little less conversation was was it number one in what you know thirty years, forty years later when they did that remix? I, if not, it, it, yeah, it probably was. It got a lot of traction when it came back. Yeah, the remix. 
How and how was that's another uh, how mark moment for him, you know, because he uh, he got some he got some ink all those years later with that. He was very happy about that. But in '67, I mean, I like I love house playing, even going back to '62, '63. But come '67, '68, '69, a lot of times he was working with Joe Osborne on bass, and he is just so on it. House playing is so happening at that time. It, he, he just he just grew as a player, you know, and the stuff he's doing, like listen to. The, the Association album, Birthday, or the song Everything That Touches You, or some of the tracks on that album, or that Fifth Dimension stuff, or anything from that era, he's so swinging and just full of vitality and imagination. And the, and you could just you could hear his technique. Uh, and I've never been a guy to to, to uh, take you know, to, to well, I marvel at somebody's technique, but it's not what makes a great record for me, but you hear how he's using his technique to do cool stuff. Uh, anyway, that, that, that period is really always uh, well worth investigating. Oh, I totally agree with you. He grew, and I totally agree that uh, when he started to play regularly with Joe Osborne and not Carol Kay, and Carol Kay, nothing against her bass work, but they kind of got a little funkier almost and a little more together as a as a unit and and a little more there's a lot more surprises in that era uh, from the rhythm section yeah even on some like the carpenters records and stuff there's just some crazy stuff going on with the bass and drums you know just you know which makes me happy when i listen to that stuff uh, he plays on tommy road dizzy which is a big drum record of course uh we mentioned i was just gonna say that record is it's a, a great example of a couple things First, the fidelity is as good as a record can sound in terms of just sheer sonic brilliance. You know, it's, it's everything is in its place and it's so well recorded. The, the drumming on that is so spot on, right? It's it. You know how good producers will try to use a click track to make things so super tight, but you can never get that that human tight feel. I mean, the feel on that record and, and just what he's playing is so, is such perfection, but it's, but it feels like a human. Oh, you know, it's a little it, bit, it yeah, it's a little bit like, laid back. It's not jerky at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. groovy. Yeah. It's so happening, you know, it's just so happening. Yeah, it, it, that that record blows my mind. It just <laughs> blows my mind. Steve Barry production. Uh, Aquarius Let the Sunshine In, which is one of like, what a 45 that is. You know what I mean? That's just a mind-blowing yeah. record. Yeah, it's just great. Exactly. Uh. You know, I think what you said is true. What you said is true that things got more active in the playing when, when he teamed up with Joe Osborne. I think... I think they pushed each other. You know, I think it was a great partnership. Then they they really took it up a notch from playing with each other. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He plays on all those, not all those, but he plays on a lot of Neil Diamond records. Another guy you think of as East Coast, but uh, a lot of those records have Hal on them. The later Uh, ones, I guess, yeah. Yeah. The Carpenters, a lot of hits, uh, mostly with Hal. And then we get into sort of the late 70s and... I didn't realize David Cassidy's version of Cherish went to number nine. Uh, 
and some Barbara Streisand records, Andy Williams records. One of my all-time favorite records, and maybe it's just because I remember it from being a kid, but Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds' Don't Pull Your Love, which has that sort of fill that starts out the record, starts on the hi-hat. It's just like it's one of the air drum records of all time. Mm. I love that record. Let's go back and listen to that one. It's been a while. Oh, it's one of my favorites. Um, Partridge Family, I Think I Love You, number one hit. Uh, and then sort of, you know, it sort of tapers off. We sort of talked about the, the end earlier. He does also play on a couple, I think, at least one Steely Dan tune somewhere somewhere in the mix. And then he sort of took off with uh, John Denver and was his road guy for a while. And then I think he sort of retired mostly, right, after that? Um, you know, uh, I think he was still doing a fair amount. Again, I was looking through these letters from the 80s and even early 90s, and he was saying that he was going, he was, uh, he was living in Marina del Rey for a while on a houseboat. And he said, oh, I go into Hollywood about three times a week. I'm still doing jingles and TV themes and movie stuff. So I think he was working pretty much, certainly not as much as he was in the 60s and 70s, but in the 80s, I'm pretty sure he was still fairly active. I didn't Uh, know that. Wow. I also didn't know he was living on a houseboat. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he wasn't making big hit records, although we should make note of uh, the Captain Antoniel record. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Love will keep... Which I guess uh, the thing we failed to mention was uh, that he had those uh, those Grammy record of the records of the years consecutively from '65 through '70, I think it was, which is another unassailable thing about Hal. I mean, it's it's just incredible that he's the guy that was on the the the, the Grammy records number one records of the years for. Five years in a row. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I I I did another podcast where I reran my 2007 interview with um with Hal, which was the last podcast folks heard before this one. And yet, and you know, I talked about that quite a bit in that. So maybe that's why I I laid off it here. But yes, it is amazing that he is the thread of of all of five in a row records that won the bet. I mean, it's just a mind blown. And I believe they're. Taste of Honey for Herb Albert, uh, Strangers in the Night for Frank Sinatra, Up, Up, and Away for Fifth Dimension, Mrs. Robinson for Simon and Garfunkel, Aquarius Let the Sun Shine for Fifth Dimension, and then Bridge Over Troubled Waters for Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, yeah. it's 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 amazing that he was the same. And he, uh, what was the, did he win one of those for Glenn Campbell, maybe one of the other years? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, so, you know, then uh, after... Bridge Over Troubled Water, then I think he skipped a year or two and then got another one for the Captain and Tennille record, and then flash forward to, what, three years ago, or whenever it was, where the Wrecking Crew were reunited for that Glenn Campbell session. I'm Not Gonna Miss You, I think was the name of the record. And and that became the Grammy number one record of the year. And uh, <laughs> he was really, really proud of that. You know, he told me that uh, however many years later it was that he, he was incredulous. You know, it, it meant so much to him. And I'm, I'm so glad that he had that honor again later in life. It, it, I was so pleased to hear that. Uh, just the best guy. Have we missed anything? Is there anything people need to know about Hal Blaine that we have not uh, covered or talked about or a, a piece of work of his that's, you know, and, and we've talked about tons of records and tons, of, but this is really 
you know, there's tons of records that nobody ever heard and lots of jingles and, you know, movie pieces and stuff like that. But uh, anything about him or about his work, Dennis, that we need to talk about before we go here? I'll just be repeating myself. I just think he was a guy that injected the joy of life into his playing. I really think that's the secret uh, of of the success of those records and why we still listen to them and want to listen to them and why we feel great when we hear them come on the car radio. I just think uh, it it took... Uh, and, you know, the other thing about Hal is he, um, he did study. He went to the Roy Knapp School of Percussion in the 50s and... Uh, studied his craft pretty seriously after he got the GI Bill. And um, then in, before he got in the studio scene in L.A., he, he did spend time in Vegas and on the road with Patty Page and uh, Tommy Sands and I think somebody else. And he, he went to Australia with Tommy Sands in late 50s, early 60s. So he had already... And also, when he was studying at the Roy Knapp School in Chicago, he was playing strip clubs at night. He was getting a lot of uh, experience. And he was very quick to point out to me, in those days, it wasn't pornographic. These girls, had, they were married, they had kids, they were, they, it wasn't pornographic, and this level of, so he played strip clubs. And then he, he got a, a gig, again, later in the 50s or early 60s, in San Bernardino, playing in a house band that backed up the celebrities that came through town like even doing rim shots for comedians like don rickles he was very close with lenny bruce in those days uh so he, he got he, he i guess you could say paid his dues but he got a lot of practical learning from uh playing gigs and uh and that's when that was real showbiz you're playing with real singers and real uh you had to read and you, you had to, you had to be on your game and how had that all in his pocket before he even hit the studios and uh, and started started making hit after hit, you know? Yeah, I think the ability to read is something that is sort of overlooked in what made the Wrecking Crew so efficient, is that, you know, yeah. except, for, except for Glenn Campbell, they could all read music, and a lot of that stuff, at least lead sheets or something, was written, and they, it helped them cut, you know, that many tracks that quickly because i think people some people just assume they just were a rock band who just you know made it up or whatever yeah right no that's a no that's a very good point and in some cases it was just lead sheets or chord sheets uh and again it's it's so hard to imagine the enormity of uh the volume of work they were doing and what that brings to you as a player and as an ensemble because again you're pretty much working with the same people day after day. So you, you, you create this, uh, this uh, cohesiveness by, and in instincts that enable you to, uh, to know where to go when you're cutting a track. And you can anticipate where your bass player is going to do something or, where, or what Leon Russell is going to interject on the, on the piano or the organ. So such a well-oiled machine because you're playing day after day so many hours and, and you can't help but be on your game and, and just uh, know what the heck to do. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's. What song should we go get out of here with? What do you want to hear? Out of Limits. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I don't know. That's the first thing that came to mind. No, perfect. Uh, perfect. Like, perfect. Yeah. 
Tommy Tedesco on guitar, uh, you know, uh, great record. I, I, I just, uh, it's funny because Ray, the riff is, uh, the guitar riff sounds like it's inspired by um, um, the Twilight Zone, right? And yet they kind of do it for the title, they do a twist on Outer Limits, which was the other... Uh, <laughs> Kind of uh, Twilight Zone ripoff uh, show, sci-fi fantasy show of that of that era. It's just funny. It's great. How can you say it's so cool? What a great track! What a great track! I, I was listening back to my interview with Hal, and uh, he was talking about how um, Glenn Campbell couldn't read music, and they were cutting. I think it is dance, 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 and uh, it's a pretty complicated guitar intro, you know, and. Uh, Glenn Campbell kept screwing it up, and you hear Hal Blaine say, should we call Tommy Tedesco? <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Yeah, yeah you, you do hear on, on some of those outtakes more of Hal's humor and jokes, and uh, I, I think that was a great thing to be able to do to cut the tension in the studio. Because the studio, you know, sessions, you're under the gun. These guys are doing three-hour sessions, and they're expected Maybe not so much for a Beach Boys session, because Brian, I think, took more time with them. But in general, to cut two to four tracks in three hours. So there's a lot of pressure going on. And Hal was able to really lighten lighten the load with his humor, which is uh, a great attribute. And I think went a long way to further his career, to, career as well. Yeah. Uh, well, Dennis, always a pleasure to talk with you just about music of, of any kind, but uh, I know Hal was close to you, and I know he's a friend. You know, I'm sorry that you lost your friend, and I'm sorry that the world has lost, uh, you know, somebody who just touched us all so much, whether we know it or not. You know, he's uh, his music, like you said, is there's no way he hasn't touched you. It made you smile, you know, something. Uh, so I, I appreciate you taking some of your time. Uh, to sort of share all of this two cents with us today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, it's true. It, uh, it's sometime I had to pinch myself just to when I would think that, uh, yeah, this guy is my friend. It's not, you know, I, 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 like I said, I was going through this folder today. I have a lot of correspondence from him. And, uh, you know, he was, again, he cared about people. He cared about what he did. And uh, long live Hal Blaine. Yeah, long with Hal Blaine. Forever. I mean, longer than, yeah, forever. We'll be listening to this stuff forever. It's just so right on, yeah. Uh, it's amazing, too. Oh, that there's you... another good choice. That, that's another good choice for the uh, the closing song, it is Forever, the Beach Boys track. He plays the monster kid on that track. Oh. Right. He played two outros. Maybe I'll sneak in. <laughs> uh Thanks, Dennis. I'm sure I'll cross paths with you soon. And uh, you can check Dennis's uh, DJing archives at WFMU and, of course, keep in touch with the Smithereens, who are still going strong. And, yeah, man. Uh, We're, I'm heading out tomorrow, as a matter of fact, to right. the Midwest. All right. Be safe, and uh, I will talk with you soon. Let's hear uh, Out of Limits. All right, Mikey. Thanks for having me.
We've only just begun to live White lace and promises A kiss for luck and we're on our way Before the rising sun we fly So many roads to choose We start out walking and learn to
Say 